going to really be, need to be in three places today. Matthew 20, Mark 10, primarily, and Luke 18. So if somehow or another you want to put little markers in those three places, we're going to be talking on Bartimaeus today, one of my favorite Bible characters. Bartimaeus, a blind man, sees. And I want to ask you a question, see if anybody knows the answer before we start our lesson, because by the time we end our lesson, you'll all know the answer. But here is the question. See if anybody knows this. What do Bartimaeus and Mary Magdalene have in common other than the fact that they were both healed by Jesus and became followers of Jesus? What do they have in common other than that? Bartimaeus and Mary Magdalene. All right, well then listen up, because by the end of the lesson you'll find out the answer to that. All right, we are getting very close to the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and all of the critical events of the final week of his earthly life and public ministry, and that is exciting. It is very likely that the events we're going to be looking at, not only today, but in the two weeks to follow after we come back after our little break, these events had all occurred near and in the city of Jericho, happened on the Thursday and Friday right before Palm Sunday. So um, we're like what we're going to be looking at today with the healing of Bartimaeus and then next time um, the salvation of Zacchaeus. These events occurred on Thursday or Friday. So we're only a week away from the Lord's crucifixion. Jericho was the last stop city for travelers coming to Jerusalem from the north and the east. And that's where the Lord was coming from, was the north. It was uh, roughly a six-hour walk to Jerusalem from Jericho. It was about 15 miles or so as the crow flies. But, <laughs> but um, remember the road to Jericho? Because we discussed this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. was an uphill, very winding, treacherous road. So you couldn't go as the crow flies. So it was really about a 21-mile hike, but they say you could make it in about half of a day. Now remember, because um, the Jews didn't travel on the Sabbath, nobody traveled on Saturday, so this does indicate that what we are going to be looking at today and in the next two lessons probably did occur one week from the day of the Lord's crucifixion. This is his last stop in Jericho. Next time we see him, he's in, he's in the area of Jerusalem, okay? The last words we had heard the Lord speak prior to these next two encounters, which took place in his only recorded visit to Jericho. This is the only time in our life of Christ study we ever see Jesus in Jericho. Well, his last words had been spoken to his men, and those words were a combination of a teaching session and a rebuke session and a peacemaking effort. And he had told them, because they'd just been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest and that sort of thing. They were mad at James and John. So he told them about their need to be servant-hearted, to be concerned with serving others more than instead of getting all ambitious about having great positions. And as he had spoken to them, he had also told them the very reason for why he had come to earth and why he must suffer many things and be killed. He had said to them, and this is in Mark 10:45. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He had come. Isn't that amazing? The King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator God of the universe, had come here to be a servant to man. He had come to be a servant and he had come to be a sacrifice to pay the redemptive price necessary to free men from their bondage to spiritual darkness and sin. In fact, as we discussed last week, he was on his way to do just that. And now he encounters, and this, of course, is all by divine appointment, he encounters along his way a blind man, Bartimaeus, who symbolizes mankind's captivity to darkness. And he also encounters another man, a little short, a a wee little man, whose name was Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was a very corrupt man. So he symbolizes mankind's captivity to sin. So we've got Bartimaeus, who symbolizes for us man's captivity to darkness, and we've got Zacchaeus, who symbolizes to us, for us, man's captivity to sin. So at this very critical hour, if the Lord had been like you and I, at this very critical point in his life, he could have been so preoccupied with his own upcoming time of agony and tribulation. He knew what laid ahead of him. Aren't you glad we don't know what lies ahead? But he did. He knew about all the the mocking and the scourging and the killing and er, everything he would go through on the cross. He had just predicted that to his men for the seventh time. Uh, He knew about his cup and his baptism. And he, so he could have been preoccupied with all of that. And he also, if he had been like us, he could have been so frustrated by just think he'd been with his men for three years. He could have been so frustrated, frustrated by their self-centeredness and their, their, their carnal natures, even at this point in time. So he could have been so filled with thoughts like this that he wouldn't take notice, take the time to notice anyone else. And yet we find over and over again that he did not react to circumstances like you and I do because he was sinless. He was without sin. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And thus we find in very typical Holy Spirit style that right away, right away, right after he had made that statement, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Right after that, the truth of it is illustrated for us in living color. You see, there were some men in Jericho who needed to be ministered unto. They needed to be set free from their bondage to darkness and sin. And Jesus was never in too great of a hurry to stop along the way to heal the afflicted and care about the sufferings of others. He was also ever and always concerned about teaching his men everything he did was to instruct his men so he is teaching his men that his talk was backed up by his walk he had just said he came to minister unto and now he's going to show them i live up to what i say i'm going to minister unto some sheep along the way who need me Well, since this is the only recorded time that we ever find Jesus in the city of Jericho, it would behoove us to remind ourselves about this city. How many of you remember that the city of Jericho was associated with a curse? Raise your hand. It was. It was associated with a curse. A curse had been put on it by the Lord through Joshua. Remember Joshua in the battle of 
Jericho, Jericho. <laughs> All the way back, you know, ancient time. That curse had been put on the city right before the priests blew the trumpets and all the Israelites shouted and the walls came a-tumbling down. Okay, that's all the singing you're going to hear from me this morning, I promise you. (laughs) Unless I get to singing about Zacchaeus. No, that'll be next time. (laughs) But you can read about that in Joshua 6, um, about the curse, okay? And it's interesting to know I was reading about Jericho and it's interesting to know that back in 1907 and 1908, the archaeologists actually excavated the site of ancient Jericho, and they found that there was indeed a Canaanite city there that had not one part of its city walls standing above ground level. Interesting, isn't it? And also the walls fell outward, not inward. Amazing. But, of course, it shouldn't be amazing to us because archaeology always proves that the scripture is true. Now, it's interesting that the rebuilt Jericho, about, about a mile from the original, was built by the Romans, particularly under Herod the Great. And he was a man, really, who was not great at all in God's sight. There was nothing great about Herod the Great. Remember him? He was a king of Israel at the time that the Lord Jesus was born. He had no business being the king of Israel. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. He came from uh, Esau. Uh, But uh, anyway, he was that very evil king who had all the little Bethlehemite boys two years and under slaughtered in his attempt to kill the Christ child. But he decided that he wanted to have a winter palace in the area of the ancient Jericho. So one mile from the ancient Jericho, he rebuilt Jericho, still called the same name. It's just one mile away. I've been to Jericho with Pastor Bob Yandel, and you can look from the, the current city of Jericho and see the ancient city. It's just one mile away. You can see it there on the edge of the, of the hills that go up. But he decided that he wanted to have his winter palace there because Jericho it has has um, warm temperatures year-round. It's a real tropical area. And it was in Jericho that King Herod died. He died a very horrible, from a horrible, loathsome disease. Anyway, Jericho was a city very highly populated by Levites and priests. You remember that from our study of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Remember who walked by on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, who walked by the... um, the, the Good Samaritan who had been robbed and beaten and left to die there on that road, but was it first a priest and then a Levite or whatever the order was? And, and, and that's because they lived in Jericho, but they worked in Jerusalem. And, of course, they only had to work one or two times during the year, so they would make that trip to Jerusalem, work in the temple, and then they would, when they were finished, they would go back and live in tropical Jericho. So uh, Jericho was populated by a lot of priests, a a lot of Levites, a lot of religious people, and a lot of tax collectors, such as little Zacchaeus. Tax collectors were wealthy because they robbed the people. (laughs) And so all of this, priests, Levites, tax collectors, all of it speaks to us still of sin. This city, even though it was rebuilt just a mile from the other city, still seems to have a curse on it. And we know also from that previous study of the parable of the Good Samaritan that that winding uphill road from Jericho to Jerusalem, it was a difference of 3,000 miles. 
Jericho was situated in the in the 3,000 feet. Thank you. You're going to have to watch me. My mind is... Um, 3,000 miles? That'd be... A... <laughs> 3,000 feet difference from Jericho. See, Jericho is situated down near the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is at the lowest point on planet Earth. It's like 1,300 feet below sea level. Whereas Jerusalem is up 2,300 feet. So there's a 3,000 feet not mile, difference between the two cities. So that road is, is very treacherous, winding, and it's uphill. It might only take half a day, but boy, you get your exercise going. It must be fun going downhill. You could get a skateboard, you know. <laughs> but uphill, it was, it was something. But anyway, we know that that was a very treacherous road because it was where robbers and murderers would hide in the, in the clefts of the mountains. You didn't want to make that trip alone. And all that is also... Uh, you know, affiliated with evil. So there's still, you know, something still evil about this area. And it was in this vicinity that the Lord Jesus could easily look over at those mountains just on the west side of Jericho and be reminded of evil personified because that was where he had been tempted by the devil in that wilderness right there. You could see it from Jericho uh, for, you know, after 40 days and 40 nights without eating that's when satan came to him and tempted him now the lord did not have to go to jericho just as he did not have to come to this evil cursed place we call planet earth but he did you know i got to thinking this is the only time we read of jesus in jericho how did he usually go from galilee in the north down to jerusalem or judea in the south he usually would pass right through samaria now, see, there was no curse on Samaria, but um, the people, the Jewish people would always go around Samaria because they had this awful prejudice against the Samaritan people. But normally he would go through Samaria. But this time, for whatever reasons, he went the normal route. He was with a caravan of Jewish people, as we talked about. And so he went when he was up near the border of Galilee, he went over to the east. I know I do it the opposite way. All right, he went over to the east, and then he went down through Perea, and then where the Jordan is the easiest to cross, he crossed over the Jordan River and went to Jericho, which is just four miles uh, west of the Jordan River. I have to think the opposite from where you guys are sitting. That's hard for my little brain. But anyway, so wh why did he do it this time? Why do you think that he went the other way instead of going through Samaria? He had divine appointments. Just like, he remember, when he must needs go through Samaria, it was because he had a divine appointment with a woman at Jacob's well. And a divine appointment with a whole village of Samaritans there in a village called Sychar. They would all come to know him as their Lord and Savior. This time, I think he purposely goes the other route so that he passes through Jericho because he has a divine appointment with some men, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. You see how far he'll go out of his way just to reach some of his sheep? I think that's exciting. Uh, there were some sheep there who would hear the voice of their good shepherd and follow him. So he went to Jericho for the same reason he came to this cursed earth, because he alone can remove the curse of God for, for sin. The curse of God on sin and set free those in bondage to its darkness and to its depravity, which is exactly what we find he does. He removes the curse 
of blindness or darkness for Bartimaeus, and he changed the life and the destiny of Zacchaeus, who was under the curse of sin. But we're going to have to save Zacchaeus for next time, and today we're going to focus on Bartimaeus. I call these two guys, I give them nicknames, Bart and Zach. Bart and Zach. Uh, we're going to focus on Lord, the Lord's miracle of healing Bartimaeus. And although this wonderful story is found in all three synoptic gospels, and you're going to have to do a little marching around today in, in your Bibles, but I am going to primarily focus on Mark's account because he does give us some more beneficial material, I think, than the others, but um, mostly we're going to be in Mark 10, okay? Did you know this is the last recorded miracle in Mark's gospel? I always like to give you trivia. You know, you can go home and ask somebody, what's the last recorded miracle in the book of Mark? And I'll say, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> and you could say the healing of Bartimaeus. Now, Mark did mention that somebody cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Who was that somebody? Peter. But he didn't, he didn't um, mention that it was Peter. He didn't mention the name of the high priest, Malchus. And he didn't mention that Jesus put the ear back on. So he just mentioned the swiping off of the ear. So we don't count that as his last recorded miracle because he didn't say what the Lord did. Now Luke and Matthew told us what the Lord did, but not Mark. So, um, Okay, but before you're going to say, when is she going to get in the text? Before we actually get into the text, I do want to discuss two seeming controversies that Bible critics of divine, the divine inspiration of Scripture just love to jump on. We're going to go through these really quickly, um, and then we'll get into the actual text. But the first seeming controversy regarding this passage is that Mark and Luke only tell us about one blind man being healed. But Matthew, if you read Matthew's account, he tells us that there were two blind men sitting by the wayside when Jesus passed by. And uh, this account in Matthew tells us that both of those blind men cried out to Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Both of them were healed by the Lord Jesus, and both of them followed the Lord Jesus. And so the critics say, aha, here's a mistake in the scripture. But this issue is so easily resolved because all it really is is a matter of focus. Mark and Luke were divinely inspired to tell us of the one blind man named Bartimaeus. Actually, Mark is the only one who tells us his name. Luke, in his typical fashion, just says a certain blind man. You know how much Luke likes the word certain. But they just focus on one blind man. You know, that man, Bartimaeus. Now, since it's very rare in the scripture for the name of someone who has been healed to be given to us, this implies that Bartimaeus became someone who was well known in the early church, you know, like Lazarus and Mary Magdalene. And by the way, um, Bartimaeus, look at verse, let's see, where does Mark tell us his name? Um, verse 46, verse 46. Mark is the only one who tells us his name, and he says, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That's like saying the same thing twice, because bar in Hebrew means son of. You know, like we have John's son. It really came from the son. Of, he was the son of John, John's son. Uh, well, bar would be like son. So it means son of Timaeus. So he's bar Timaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. So it's saying the same thing twice, really, there. But uh, there were, indeed, there were two men. 
there, there were two men who were healed by the Lord there outside of Jericho, and one of them was Bartimaeus. Uh, just like there were two demoniacs who were exercised of their demons when Jesus made his brief trip over to Gadara. Remember the crude, rude dude in the nude? Well, there were actually two of those guys. But the focus in Matthew was, I mean, well, Matthew told us there were two, but the focus in the other gospel writers was just on the one who was the more vocal of the two and the one who went on to become such a soul winner as he went throughout the cities of Decapolis and led many people to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we find the same thing here. Obviously, Bartimaeus was the one of the two blind men here who became more of a leader within the early Christian church so that Mark could say, you know, those two blind men, one of them was Bartimaeus. You guys all know Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a leader. And as we're going to look at his story, we'll see that he was indeed leadership material. Also, it's interesting that it is Matthew in both of those accounts who tells us that there were two demoniacs in Gadara, two blind men outside of Jericho, because Matthew's primary readers were who? The Jewish people. And according to Jewish Old Testament law, you needed at least how many witnesses to prove the authenticity of something? You needed at least two witnesses. Also... Matthew wrote his gospel before Mark and Luke. So by the time Mark and Luke sat down to write, they knew Matthew had already told everybody that there were two blind men. So they just focused on the one. It's not a big issue. Now the other seeming controversy is over the fact that Luke tells us that the Lord's encounter with Bartimaeus occurred as he was coming near to Jericho, whereas Matthew and Mark tell us that it happened as he went out of Jericho. And so the, script, the uh, critics say, aha, this is a real proof that there's a contradiction in the scripture. But this supposed problem is also very easily resolved when you find out, as I told you earlier, that how many Jerichos were there at the time of Christ? There were two Jerichos. You see, the ancient Jericho, the city of Rahab, who, by the way, was a, an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's one of, of, of just two women um, who, were, who were Gentile pagan women at one point in time who are included in the Lord's own genealogy. Talk about grace and mercy. But uh, the ancient Jericho, whose walls came tumbling down, that city, even though there was a curse placed on it for anyone who would rebuild it, yet it was rebuilt under the rule of wicked King Ahab. You know him. He had a wife named Jezebel. <laughs> Well, he thumbed his nose at God and said, I don't care about your curse. I'm going to rebuild Jericho anyway. And sure enough, the man, the poor man who rebuilt the city for him, he, he fell under the curse. The curse was anyone who rebuilt it, you'd lose your first son and your last son. And the man who rebuilt it lost his first son and his last son. But anyway, so the city was rebuilt. And at the time of Christ, there were people living there in the ancient city. Now, the, the new city was also there, the city that King Herod had built for his winter palace. It was there. So there were two Jerichos inhabited at the time of Christ. So all it means is that two of the gospel writers are saying as he came out of the one Jericho and was approaching the other Jericho, because they're only a mile from each other and you can see them from each other, that that's when he encountered Bartimaeus and his blind compa companion. So once again... 
if the critics would just do their archaeological homework, they'd find out that there's no controversy at all. Well, let's see. Is that enough? That's, oh, there's one more thing I want to tell you. Jericho, Jericho was very tropical and lush. I mentioned that, all right? Um, but it was a city, because of the warm temperatures year-round, that was famous for fig trees, famous for citrus fruits trees. It was famous for bal a balsam bush that grew there in great groves. It was also famous for its sycamore trees. What does that remind you of? Again, little Zacchaeus. And it was famous, too, for rose gardens. I always think of you, Sylvia, when I talk about rose gardens, but rose gardens abound there in that area. It's a good place, if you love to grow roses, a good place to have a rose garden. Actually, Jericho, the name means smell. And the smell was because of the uh, abundant roses there. And she was also known for her great palm forest, lots of palm trees. And this, of course, tells you why so many priests and Levites and tax collectors and other very wealthy people wanted to live there. It was a beautiful place to live. It was kind of, I guess, like Florida or California, San Diego, California. And Jericho was called in the ancient times, you can even read it, three times in the Old Testament, it was called the City of Palms. And it would have been from Jericho that the multitude of Passover pilgrims who accompanied Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it would have been in Jericho that they had gotten their palm branches, not up 3,000 feet in Jerusalem, but down in Jericho is where they got their palm branches. Okay, that's enough setting the stage. That was our introduction. Let's get into the, the message. Woo-hoo. All right, starting at verse 46 of Mark 10. <clears throat> it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the, man, the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Okay, let's look real quickly also at Luke 18, if you don't mind. I didn't do this yesterday, but I think it'll help you as I talk. Luke 18, let's see, what's the scripture for that? Starting at verse 35, Luke 18, 35. It says, And it came to pass that as he, Jesus, was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. We didn't read that in Mark. He hears the great multitude. He says, what does this mean? And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes, passeth by. 
And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Okay, I could also read Matthew. He tells, tells us that there were two. And he gives us a little bit more information, but I'll probably mention that as we go along. Okay, Passover was the time of year that helped the blind and helped the other handicapped people who were beggars, especially those there in Jericho, because uh, more people passed their way at that time of year. And that would mean more alms that they would receive. So the highways in and out of the city. Now, Jericho stood on the crossroads of a highway that ran north and south and also one that went east and west. So the highways into Jericho would be, at this time of the year, lined with beggars who would be competing with one another for attention from those who passed by so that they could receive their alms. And their common cry was bachshish, bachshish. They would shout that out. It meant a gift, a gift. So Bartimaeus and his likewise blind companion were situated probably from the very early morning hours of the day on the side of one of the major highways outside of Jericho, probably between the two Jerichos, you know, the highway between the two Jerichos. Now, did I mention before that Jericho also housed many blind people? Did I say that? No, and the reason that there were a lot of blind people who lived in Jericho was because, number one, It was warm all year long, so they could sit outside and beg, you know, without the cold and all that. There wasn't a whole lot of rain in Jericho either. And also more for the reason because the balsam bushes grew there, and from those balsam bushes they produced an eye balm that was supposed to be good to for those who were going blind, those who were losing their sight. Now, I don't know how much real benefit they got from the balm, but that was why a lot of blind people went there. Now, blindness back in ancient times was all too frequent of an infliction. How many of us could raise our hands and say that without laser surgery, cataract surgery, without contact lenses, as I have on today so I can see your lovely faces, Uh, Without glasses, how many of us would be legally blind? I don't know if I'd be in that category yet, but I'm getting there. Um, and, And back in those days, you know, not only did they have all those benefits for eyesight, but there was a lot more people who were born blind because of um, diseases their mothers contracted. And also there were more ways to go blind, to lose your blindness from wounds and from different diseases that were untreatable. Today they're treatable, then they weren't. So there was a lot of blind people back in the Lord's day. Now, I didn't read this in Mark, but it was over in Luke. Luke tells us that Bartimaeus, a certain blind man, when he heard the noise of an unusually great multitude of people, he asked what it meant. That was in Luke 18.36. Now, this was definitely an extra large caravan of, of pilgrims that were going on their way to Jerusalem. What did it mean? There was a lot of voices in the crowd that he could hear, a lot of an, uh, 
excited voices, a lot of people talking. He could hear the, the feet of uh, many people tramping by. And he just knew that there was something. You know how the blind um, compensate for their blindness with their ears? So, you know, he, they could compensate and say, this is really a large crowd. This is an excited crowd. What is going on? And uh, so in response to his question, somebody answered him and gave him the greatest news that he could ever imagine. Someone said to him, Jesus of Nazareth passeth by, Luke 18, 37. And notice Bartimaeus did not have to ask the question, who is uh, Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> Think about it. By this time in the Lord's ministry, after three and a half years, his name was like a household word throughout Israel. And among the sick and the afflicted and the handicapped and the maimed and the lepers and the blind, that name had to be the greatest name any of them could ever hear was coming their way. Surely ever since Bartimaeus had first heard about Jesus, and especially when he had heard that Jesus could even heal the blind, and then in particular some six months earlier, in nearby Jerusalem at the time of the fall feast of tabernacles when he had heard that this Jesus of Nazareth had also healed a man who had been born blind, Bartimaeus must have begun to pray that one day this Jesus of Nazareth would pass by his way. He's blind, so he can't get to Jesus. Who could get to Jesus? He was constantly moving around so much you'd never know where he was. And they didn't have cell phones and uh, GPSs to track him down. <laughs> and so he must have prayed that one day he'd come to Jericho. And remember, too, that Jericho was only 13 miles away from Bethany, where just a matter of maybe two weeks prior to this, Lazarus had been raised from the dead by this Jesus of Nazareth. And don't you know that that news had spread like wildfire? Lots of people passing between Jericho and Jerusalem, and they would have very quickly brought the news about Lazarus. And so messianic expectations were at an all-time high with regard to this one who had such power that he could not only give a man born blind his eyesight, but he could also raise the dead. Everybody's excited, naturally, and it's the Passover time of year, and they're all expecting Jesus, who always obeyed the law, that he would attend the Passover feast in Jerusalem because it was mandatory for all Jewish males to attend that feast. So, yes, this was absolutely, definitely the best news that Bartimaeus could possibly hear, and he didn't hesitate to seize his opportunity, competing with all the voices of all his competitors, you know, all the other people lining the road, who were also begging uh, for alms from the great crowd, as well as all the noise that was coming from the people who were in the multitude. He raised his voice above everyone, and he must have had really had a good set of lungs, and he yelled out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the Greek word for cry out is actually an onomatopoeia. How many of you know what that is? You do. <laughs> it's a word that, it sounds like what it is. Like um, giggle, 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 sounds like a giggle, doesn't it? And wiggle, to me, wiggle sounds like what it is. <laughs> well, the Greek word for cry out is krazo, and it sounds like what it is because it means a really loud cry. 
Krazo! And that's what he was doing. It's the same Greek word that is used for a woman's screams during when she's having labor pains. <laughs> and, you know, that was before spinal taps and epidurals and all the way you girls nowadays get out of all that fun. Not really, but I remember when I was giving birth to my son, who's my oldest, I thought, who in the world is that obnoxious woman screaming? And it was me. They had me under so much gas. I don't know, anyway. But Krazo, Krazo is also the word that was used um, when the Syrophoenician woman was crying out to Jesus for his mercy for her demon-possessed daughter. And this, to me, is the most interesting. It is also the same Greek word that is used for the Lord's own cry after he had been hanging on the cross for six hours None of us know the pain of hanging on a cross like that, being crucified. It's just beyond imagination. But they say part of the worst physical problem of it is that you can't breathe. And um, just to get any breath at all, you'd have to try to push your feet against this little beam at the bottom so that you could get your next breath. Because, you know, you'd just be like this, crunched down. And after six hours of hanging up there on the cross... Any anyone would just be it would take all they could do to say help and every time they move you know, it's just horrific but for, but for the Lord after six hours of hanging on the cross to crazo it is finished tells us that he was in control what a man what a savior to be able to do that it's like a miracle right there. Anyone else would be, it's finished, you know, but not the Lord. That's, that's just an amazing thing that it's the word crazo. Anyway, so we find that Bartimaeus was desperate to get the attention. He's desperate to get Jesus' attention because for all he knows, this could be the only one. He's only one in opportunity to receive his sight. You know, he didn't know if Jesus would ever pass by his way again. Now, we know that he was absolutely right in his desperation to scream out and try to get the Lord's attention because, as we know, the Lord never did pass by his way again. He never would go through Jericho again. So he was wise in his desperation. I, I just would pray that people out in the world today would be as wise as this blind man in their desperation to scream out and cry out for Jesus' mercy as they pass, you know, as he passes by in this one life opportunity that they have. To cry out for his mercy, not caring who hears him, you know, as long as he gets Jesus' attention. So Bartimaeus here is a good example to us. And I don't care what the rest of the world thinks. Cry out until the Lord stops and calls you to himself. Well, anyway, that's another story, but it's important for us to know that in referring to Jesus as the son of David, as he does, Bartimaeus and his companion, were stating that they did believe Jesus was the greater son of David. They were saying that they believed he was the Messiah, the one God promised David would come from his seed. They believed that he was the one Isaiah 35, 5 predicted would be able to give sight to the blind. You know, Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, he will have power to give sight to the blind. Did any of the other Old Testament prophets who had miraculous powers, were they able to do that? No. No one had ever been able to give sight to the blind. Not Moses, not Elijah, Elisha, no. 
So he said, Isaiah said that they'd be able to give, the Messiah would be able to give sight to the blind. He'd be able to open the ears of the deaf. He'd be able to cause the lame to leap and the deaf to speak, among many other things. And so um, Bartimaeus believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And they are the first ones. Bartimaeus and his blind friend are the first ones in the Gospel of Mark to have used this title for Jesus. Yay, Bartimaeus and your friend, whatever his name was. <laughs> but they're the first ones to call Jesus the son of David. And very interestingly, another little trivia for you, but do you know who the first ones were in Matthew's gospel who called Jesus the son of David? Likewise, two blind men up in Galilee were the first ones to call Jesus son of David. Now we here we have two blind men. Again, the witness thing, you know, two blind men down in Judea who also called Jesus for the first time son of David in Mark's gospel. You know what that tells me? Hearing is so much more important in the spiritual realm than seeing. Hearing. How does faith come? Faith cometh by hearing. You see, to Bartimaeus, Jesus was more than Jesus of Nazareth as the ones who had responded to his initial question, you know, what's going on here? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. To him, he was much more. He was the son of David. You know, as we have said many times in our Life of Christ study, it's just amazing that faith shows up so often where it is least expected, doesn't it? As physically blind as Bartimaeus was, yet he believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He had himself, he had never witnessed one of the Lord's miracles. He had, ne he had never seen him perform it because he's blind. So I know he'd never seen one of his miracles. But he would have only heard of Jesus and of Jesus' great power secondhand, just like you and I. He only heard about Jesus through the testimonies of others. And yet the moment Bartimaeus heard that he was passing by, he cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. You see, the eyes of his body may have been blind, but the eyes of his heart and his soul were very perceptive. He saw things that the learned scholars of Israel and of Judaism never saw. He reminds me of the man who had been born blind over in you know, John chapter 9, who could put two and two together better than even the members of the Sanhedrin council. Remember that blind man? I love Bartimaeus, and I, we loved that blind man too, didn't we? Got to love him. He's such a character, but Bartimaeus is a character too. But that blind man had said, you know, hmm, this is really strange. I know that I, once I was blind, and now I can see. And then he's so bold, he says, right to the Sanhedrin, because they're saying, you know... He's got to be wicked and evil. He says to them, since the world began, was it not heard that any man could open the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, then he could do nothing. You see, he had the capacity to put two and two together and figure out that Jesus had to be of God. And, you know, the more opposition he had, the more he grew in his faith. But, uh, and that's exactly what we see happens here. But so Bartimaeus was able to figure out from all that he had heard that Jesus was the promised son of David. In addition to evidencing faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, he also gave evidence of having true spiritual humility. And here he reminds me of the publican who was in the temple along with the Pharisee. 
Remember that publican was so humble, he understood his spiritual need. Well, Bartimaeus understood his absolute helplessness apart from the mercy of God. Just like the publican, he asked for the right thing. He asked Jesus for something he knew that he did not deserve. He asked for something that God is rich in. What is God rich in? Mercy. Aren't you glad for that? He didn't cry out for... um, he didn't cry out for money. He didn't do the n- normal thing, bakshish, bakshish. He didn't even cry out for um, food or clothing. Or he didn't even cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, give me my eyesight. He cried out for the thing he needed the most. He cried out for mercy. And you know what? It's a really good thing that he cried out to Jesus for mercy. Because the crowd surely gave him none. (laughs) In fact, if the crowd had had their way, Bartimaeus and his companion would have remained in darkness all the rest of their days. We are told, and this is in Matthew, the one account I didn't read, but Matthew tells us that it was a multitude, or many, and um, no, Mark tells us that it was many, and Matthew says it was a multitude who charged him that he should hold his peace. Hush up, man! Be quiet. It actually says in uh, Luke, I don't know, I'm getting them all confused, but one of them says, or two of them, I think, says that they rebuked him. You see, everybody in that passing crowd, if you think about it, every one of them, big caravan of pilgrims with Jesus, every one of them had to be in, in in a better position than these two blind beggars because at least all of them could see. They could see where they were going. They had the freedom to move around. They could work for a living, uh, etc. But not one of them apparently even tried to put themselves in these blind beggars' shoes. And remember the Jewish thinking at that time was, well, these people begging here deserve, you know, they're reaping what they've sown. Maybe in a previous life, or maybe they did some sin in their mother's womb, or maybe it's their mother and dad's fault for some sin that they committed. So, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of sympathy for people like Bartimaeus. And they were only annoyed at his loud shouting. And the crowd was bothered by the possibility that these fellows might actually hinder their own plans and halt the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem and the the great anticipated overthrow of Rome. After all, you know, that was much important more important for Jesus to get into Jerusalem and overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom. That was far more important than him stopping here and wasting his time on such low life beggars um, and even obnoxious ones at that who wouldn't shut up. They kept on crying crazo in loud voices. So they're saying basically be quiet, man. You know, maybe he can deal with you later after he sets up his kingdom. Maybe you can get somebody to bring you to Jerusalem, but don't bother him now. And don't disrupt our plans for him with your irritation for mercy. So it's a good thing he asked Jesus for mercy, right? Not the crowd. So Bart was was scolded here for his zealous plea to the son of David. Which, by the way, don't you know that the Lord knew about? The Lord knew of Bartimaeus before he was even born. He knew what he wanted. I'm sure he even heard his screams, but he delayed in in calling him to himself. He let the man continue to to cry out because all of this was a test. It was a test of the man's persistence. And did he pass that test? Yes, with flying colors. 
The Lord's delay in answering him did not hinder his persistent prayer for mercy. And that's a lesson to us as well. Now, I love the fact that that, uh, Bartimaeus would not be bludgeoned into shutting his mouth, no matter how strong the pressure to do so. Just like that born blind man who was healed when uh, he was desynagogued, even when his parents didn't really back him up. He didn't keep quiet. He just kept going forward. In fact, um, the opposition Bartimaeus encountered here only caused him to be more earnest in his seeking Christ. He recognized his desperation. And so we are told that his response to their rebukes to him was, look at this, this is in verse 48, that he cried, which is given in the present tense, he kept on crying the more a great deal. Don't you like him? He kept on crying even more and probably louder. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. He was giving evidence of having active faith, faith that pressed on, faith that persisted in spite of criticism and in spite of of, uh, peer pressure. And notice where the criticism is coming from. This is interesting. It's coming from those who are following with Jesus. Do we find that sometimes? even within the quote-unquote church. Sometimes those who criticize us and, and rebuke us, you know, don't get too excited. Catherine, lower your voice. Don't get, get too zealous about Jesus or the word of God. Settle down a little bit. Be um, proper and dignified. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> but interestingly, you know, just like when the disciples rebuke the parents for bringing their children to jesus so many times we're shocked which i guess we shouldn't be that the most criticism comes from those within the church all right it's interesting to look back now i want you to go to luke 18 this time i do want you to see this as we go back through luke 18 well we have been in luke 18 for a long time just like we have been in mark 10 for a long time but as we go back through luke 18 we see how the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put together a whole series of lessons on the basic truth that persistence is a very important part of the Christian life. Look at how Luke 18 started. It started with the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And we were even given the stated purpose of that parable there in the very first verse, which was that Jesus was teaching his followers that they ought always to pray and not to faint. That's all about persistence, isn't it? Being persistent in our prayers. And then there was the, uh, right after that, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican with the emphasis on the publican who, in spite of peer pressure against him on all sides, especially coming from that arrogant Pharisee, yet he persisted in his cry to God for mercy. Remember, he kept smiting his breast and looking down, and he was so humble, and he persisted, and that persistence paid off because he was the one who left the temple that day justified. And then also, I just mentioned this in Luke 18, was the account of the parents who tried to bring their children to Jesus but were rebuked by his own men. And yet, you know, they were persistent, and persistent, and their persistence paid off. And the only one in this whole chapter, Luke 18, who we find did not continue to persist was the rich young ruler. Now, he started out real well. He didn't care that his peers would 
would be horrified that he ran in public and then he fell down before Jesus and, and called him good master. But the problem with him is that he didn't persist. He quit because his wealth got in the way. But then, right away, we had a contrast between him and the Lord's own men who did continue to persist following the Lord. Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. We've been persistent, Lord. And the Lord immediately said, You're right, and you're going to be rewarded for that. You will have manifold more for having done so. And then, of course, that was immediately followed by the Lord's own example of persistence. Even knowing all that awaited him once he got to Jerusalem in the way of suffering and death, yet he had a spirit of splint-like, uh, a spirit of flint-like determination to persist in his task until it was accomplished. The greatest example of persistence of all is the Lord Jesus. And now, completing this persistence-packed chapter, we have who? Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, who would not be quieted. He would not be bludgeoned into silence no matter who or how many in the crowd tried to get him to hush up. So it says, he cried out, the more a great deal. And then we read the next fantastic words. Look at verse 49. And I know these are fantastic and critical words because all three gospel writers mention this. It says, and Jesus stood still. I love that. (laughs) Now remember in our last lesson, he was walking out ahead of his men. He was at a a fast pace out in front of them because he did have that flint-like determination to get to Jerusalem and get to Calvary and put his work behind him, you know, accomplish that which he had come to do. And so we saw him walking at a fast pace. Uh, But suddenly, here he comes to a screeching halt, and Jesus stood still. You see, the persistent cry for help from one of his buying sheep so moved him with compassion, and Matthew tells us about his compassion, that he stopped still in his tracks. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon made this comment, which is great. He said that Joshua, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, Joshua may have called out to have the sun stand still, but the blind beggar Bartimaeus ranks even above Joshua in that he caused the son of righteousness to stand still. The cry for mercy will stop deity in its tracks. That's the one prayer of an unsaved person that will get the Lord's attention. So Jesus came to a dead stop in his Flint-like resolve to get on to Jerusalem. He would stop in this cursed city of Jericho to reach out to some of his sheep who needed his help. Sheep who needed to be released from their captivity to darkness. And so the heaven-sent king of David then issued forth a command that Bartimaeus and his companion be called to him. And they who went to fetch him, now I don't know who the they was, (laughs) the people who went to fetch Bartimaeus and his friend, 
Um, but whoever they were, now they may have been some of the Lord's disciples, I hope that they were, uh, or they may have been part of the crowd that had just been rebuking this man. I don't know who they were. But if they had been part of the crowd who had one minute been rebuking him, and now here they're going to Bartimaeus and saying, um, be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. If, if it was the same people, this just shows us of the fickleness of the masses, doesn't it? Can you trust the crowds out there? One minute they're for you, and one minute they can just turn their backs on you. You know, they, they love Obama now if he messes up. They would turn on him in a second. That's just the way life is, isn't it? And what did they do with Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? They're going, Hosanna, the son of David, and waving their palm branches from Jericho and loving him. And then when he doesn't do what they want him to do and he's hanging on a cross, or before, what do they say? Crucify him, crucify him. You can't trust the crowd, the fickleness of people. But whoever these they are, they go and they get Bartimaeus and they say, be of good comfort. Which means be of good cheer, rise, he calleth thee. Did you know there is no greater comfort, there is no greater cheer than when Jesus calls you to himself? How many of you can testify? I will never, ever forget the day that he called me unto himself. You talk about comfort. I hadn't had any comfort for years. For 21 and 22, how old was I? 22 and a half years. And for the last year, I hadn't been able to sleep at night because I was so worried what would happen to me if I died in my sleep that I was hyperventilating and going to the emergency room and having just a tear. I had no comfort. I had no peace. But when he called me unto, my, um, unto himself, <laughs> be of good comfort. I slept like a baby that night. There's no one who can bring you comfort in this wicked, wicked world that we live in and give you even cheer like Jesus Christ can. And so, <laughs> the absolute joy that must have flooded Bartimaeus's soul when he heard that Jesus summoned him, I just can't imagine. But the scripture actually helps us to imagine that joy that flooded his soul because we are told, and this is where we're told only by Mark, but I love this and I'm so glad Mark told us this, that when he heard those words, what did he do? Look at verse 50. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And I got to thinking, maybe this is why Bartimaeus is the focus of Mark's account. Maybe the other blind man took his outer garment with him, but not Bartimaeus. He wanted, and the, the garment they're talking about here is the outer robe. You know, they had an inner robe and an outer robe. Uh, he didn't want anything at all to hinder him in his eagerness to get to Jesus. He might trip on that garment. It, this would have been the most important possession he would have had, especially as a beggar, because the outer garment was what beggars would use if they were homeless, uh, what they would use as a blanket to cover them at night. And also, it was what they would spread before them. Okay, here he is. He's on the side of a highway sitting on the dirt road, you know. And what they would do is they would take their outer garment off, and they, they're sitting down on the ground, and they would put the outer garment in front of them. And this is what people would throw their alms on, their coins on, the outer garment. So when he gets word that Jesus is summoning him, what he does is he grabs that outer garment, 
probably had coins on it too, and just flings it out of his way. He don't want anything to hinder him. And then it says that he rose. Now, I'm sorry the English only says rose because the Greek word is sprang up. There is nothing hesitant about this man at all when it comes to Jesus. He sprang up, like, like just like a spring chicken. And it's the only time this word is used in the whole Bible, this particular Greek word. He, he just, <laughs> like Tigger and Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> he sprang up. You can tell I have little grandchildren, can't you? Uh, and uh, and he, see, he didn't care. I compare him to the rich young ruler. You know, the rich young ruler had so much. And yet he wasn't willing to part with any of it. And here, this blind man, all he had probably was those few coins that would buy his daily bread and his outer garment. And he doesn't care. Get those things out of the way so I can get to Jesus. This tells this is a graphic way of telling us of his spirited response to get to the Lord. And there is a lesson on the spirit on a spiritual truth about salvation in this too. Because all who will be set free from the darkness of sin must be ready and willing to cast aside anything that might hinder our response to to his call to come unto him. Well, those who had been sent by the Lord to fetch Bartimaeus and his companion would also, of course, have assisted him in getting to Jesus because he wouldn't be able to get there without assistance. And it says, and when he was come near, this is in Luke 18:40, the Lord asked him a question. He was an expert at probing out of people what they really wanted in life. And of course, the Lord in his omniscience, he knew what Bartimaeus and his friend already wanted, didn't he? But yet he asked them, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? By his question, he was giving up uh, Bartimaeus an opportunity to express himself and to give further evidence of his faith. Did he, what did he really believe about Jesus? You know, he had called him the son of David. Did he really believe? You remember the rich young ruler had called Jesus good master? Did he really believe that Jesus was the good master? You remember the Lord said, why callest thou me good? There's none good but God. The rich young ruler really didn't believe that Jesus was God. So he didn't really believe he was the good master. Did Bartimaeus really believe he was the son of David? And what else did, did he really believe that G, what, what Jesus could do to him for him? Did he really believe Jesus had the power to give him his sight? And by the way, think about this. In not correcting Bartimaeus at this point in time for having repeatedly and loudly called, called him the son of David. I don't think I worded that right. Um, in not rebuking him for saying that he was the son of David, Jesus was really admitting that he was the son of David. Because if not, this would have been the time when he would have said, Bartimaeus, don't call me the son of David. I am not. I am not the promised Messiah. But he didn't do that because he is the greater son of David. So he was accepting that title. Our friend Bartimaeus not only knew what he wanted from the Lord, he also knew exactly what the Lord was able to do. So being a man who we have seen has not been hesitant at anything, he immediately responded to the Lord's question by saying, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And again, in the English, you don't see this, but the word receive my sight really means receive back my sight. So here was a man 
who had probably gone to Jericho because of the eye balm, he had at one point in time been able to see. He wanted his sight back. Um, and his, his response is interesting in two other ways also. First of all, it definitely tells us that Bartimaeus believed in the power of the Lord to open his eyes. Secondly, the word Lord, and this is, I'm, I really feel bad that the Bible interpreters didn't give you this, didn't give all of us this, but the word Lord in Mark 10.51 is the Aramaic word Rabboni, Rabboni. It's not the usual Greek word, Lord, Kyrie. It's Rabboni, which shows more honor and more reverence than the regular word, Rabbi. It's actually the heightened form of the word Rabban, which means my Lord, my master. And the only other time, yeah, here we go. There's your answer. The only other time that this word for Christ is used in the gospel accounts is found in John 20:16 when it was the ex- excited exclamation of who? Catherine? Mary Magdalene in the garden tomb when she heard the voice of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ say Mary and she turned and said Rabboni, my Lord, my master. You see, in having called Jesus the son of David, Bartimaeus used a national messianic title, which tells us that he did indeed believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And there were a lot of people in that day who believed Jesus was the promised Messiah. They had a head knowledge of it. But in using here the term Rabboni, in calling him Rabboni, Bartimaeus was expressing his own personal faith in Jesus. He was moving the head knowledge to the heart. Not only was he the promised Messiah, but he was Bartimaeus's Lord, my Lord, my master. And now it's Matthew's turn to tell us two things that none of the other gospel accounts told us. He says, number one, Jesus had compassion on him. Number two, he touched their eyes. He touched both men's eyes. Now, he didn't always touch those who he healed, did he? On one occasion, I can remember that it wasn't him touching someone, but them touching him, the hem of his garment, the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, not 18 years. It's wrong in your books if you, when you get to that and you're reading it, it says 18 years, scratch it out. It was 12 years she had an issue of blood. But she touched him and she was healed. Sometimes people were healed by just his spoken word without any touching at all. Sometimes people were healed just because he willed them to be healed. Sometimes people were healed um, from a distance. Sometimes he wasn't even there. They, you know, they were in another town. Sometimes spit was involved. Do you remember our three spit, spitting miracles? Three times spit was involved. Um, <clears throat> sometimes he healed people who gave absolutely no evidence of having faith in him whatsoever, such as uh, Jairus' daughter. She was dead. We don't know if she had any faith in him. The Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter, the Roman centurion's servant, we don't, there was a lot of people who didn't evidence any faith in him, and yet they were healed. And then there were people like today's story who did, they were healed, and they did indeed evidence that they had faith in him. What does all this tell us? 
It's up to him. He's sovereign. You can't put him in a box. He, he doesn't always do things in the same way um, because his ways are higher than our ways, and we don't, you know, he just, it's up to him. He is sovereign. However, I do have to say that I think a touch, as in this case, gives a more intimate picture, don't you? As such as when he touched the lepers, and here as he touched these two blind men, he also happened to touch the two blind men up in Galilee who called him the son of David. He touched their eyes. Well, as the Lord touched Bartimaeus and his friend, he said, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Here again, the Greek is important because the word for whole is sozo, S-O-Z-O, which is the most common New Testament term used in reference to salvation. So you see, immediately as Bartimaeus received his sight, he was not only set free from captivity to physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. The greater miracle happened, and he was saved. What happened in his body was a picture of what happened in his soul. And this brings us to a total of five people to whom the Lord Jesus said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Who were they? First one was back in Luke 7.50, the woman who went into Simon the Pharisee's house and fell down at Jesus' feet. She was probably a prostitute. She let down her hair, and she, she washed his feet with her tears and her long hair. To her, he said, thy faith hath made thee sozo, whole, saved. The second one was that woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. Third one was, oh, okay, one of the 10 thankful, uh, the only one of the 10 lepers who were healed, and there was only one who was thankful and returned to Jesus. And Jesus said it unto him, Thy faith hath made thee whole. And now we have, that was one, two, three. And now we have Bartimaeus and his blind companion because both of them heard these words. Thy faith hath made thee whole. So that's a total of five people. And five is the number of grace. What a wonderful thing to open your eyes and the first face you see be the face of Jesus. I think that's how it's going to be in death, don't you? That's what Bartimaeus experienced here. And if Bartimaeus had been a boisterous, loud, zealous, persistent beggar for mercy before he received his sight and his salvation, can you imagine what this man was like after? Uh, Luke tells us that he was glorifying God. I can just see him jumping up and down. Um, glorifying God and praising the Lord. And when everybody in that crowd who had been rebuking him saw what had happened, it says that they too started glorifying God. They too started giving praise unto God. He was a leader. He got the whole crowd excited. He was excited instead of, you know, all them saying, they got excited too. I think he probably was the first one to go over and break off a branch from a palm tree and start waving it and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I think he was, well, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but as they marched from Jericho into Jerusalem in just a couple days, I can picture Bartimaeus at the head of the crowd with his palm branch saying, Hosanna to the son of David. He got the whole crowd to be saying son of David, didn't he? It was a ringleader. And um, <clears throat> back to the story. When After he was healed, the Lord said to him, Go thy way. You see, the Lord was giving him liberty at this point to choose his own path. Go back to your family. I don't know where he was from originally. Maybe he was. Go thy way. But <laughs> Bartimaeus knew which way he wanted to go. Look at the end of verse 52. I'm in the wrong chapter. Luke 10. <clears throat> 
it says, he says, go thy way. And immediately you received a sight and followed Jesus in the way. Which way did he want to go? He wanted to go the way Jesus was going. So this tells us, and by the way, the word followed is given in the continuous tense. He continued to follow the Lord Jesus. So in another day or so, Bartimaeus was with that crowd that did ride into, go into Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus. And what do we find that they were shouting on Palm Sunday? Matthew 21, 9 says this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That was declared by the multitude who followed Jesus into, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was a great leader. Bartimaeus. I believe one day in heaven uh, we're going to find out that he was, he was the leader in this pack. Well, I want to finish. I know I've gone over time, but I want to finish with a little true story that's very moving. When I read it, I started crying, but it's a, a true story about a medical missionary who performed surgery on a blind man who was a national in the country where the missionary was serving. And the surgery was a success, and the blind man received his sight. But shortly after the surgery, the blind man suddenly disappeared. And it really saddened the missionary because the man hadn't even bothered to say thank you or goodbye. He just disappeared. And the missionary, you know, at least he could have said goodbye to me. However, a few days later, there was a a knock on the missionary's door, and when he opened it, he was greatly surprised to see his former blind patient standing there at his door holding a rope. And guess what? Attached to that rope were ten more blind men. Isn't that wonderful? And I, I would not be surprised at all to find out if Bartimaeus was not the reason that we read this in uh, Matthew 21, uh, 21, 14. In just a few days, after Jesus does go into Jerusalem, you have to put everything in the context. That makes it so much more exciting. When you're teaching your children the story of Bartimaeus, make sure you put it in the context. Just a few days before Palm Sunday and the crucifixion and everything. But just in a few days from when Bartimaeus got his sight... And Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's sitting there, and he's teaching the people. We read this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. You see what I think happened? Not only was Bartimaeus at the front of the crowd, waving his palm branches and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, but once they got into the city of Jerusalem, I believe Bartimaeus ran around with a rope. And he found every blind person and every lame person that he could in that city. And he brought them to Jesus there in the temple. And they were all healed. That's what I think. And wouldn't you do the same? Wouldn't you? I hope you would. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for including this wonderful story in the word of God. Father, teach us, all of us, to be persistent in our pursuit of your righteousness and in our pursuit of Christ-likeness, which only comes really through our persistence in your word. I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our souls and our minds would be so desirous of knowing you more fully and seeing you more plainly that we too are willing to, to literally cast aside anything that might encumber or hinder us from that pursuit. And there's many things out there to distract us. 
May we learn to ignore the voices of people or systems that would try to keep us from this, this soul purpose, Father. And may we have a deeper love for the lost and a greater boldness to get out there in the world with a rope and bring them to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you.